We are today continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the fourth sermon in the series, a sermon that was preached by Jesus uh, initially to his disciples, a sermon that is about the kingdom of heaven, but not necessarily about heaven, if you recall. But a kingdom that, or a sermon that is about the reign of God among his people. As a matter of fact, that's, that is Jesus' meaning when he often uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. He's really talking about the reign of God among his people. Now, for those of you who are visiting us this morning, uh, if this is your first time, I want to repeat some major preliminary assumptions so that as you listen to today's sermon, you don't get a misinterpretation of the sermon or of the, of the Sermon on the Mount itself. The sermon is not about how to get into the kingdom of heaven, but rather how to display the reign of God in our lives once we have become citizens of that kingdom. Now, this, is, this was God's desire from the beginning of the Old Testament when he chose the people of Israel to pre- represent him on earth. Remember a few weeks and months ago, we went through a series on the book of Exodus and how God wanted the people to build an ark that would be in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the people of Israel. And that ark, it was the ark of the covenant with the laws of God, was to represent not only God's presence among his people, but God's rule among his people. God's presence among his people is always the presence of the king. And therefore, God's presence among his people is a kingly presence. This was true in the Old Testament, and this principle continues in the New Testament as well, even as Jesus will either clarify or redefine what that reign means in people's lives. So the broad theme of the kingdom of of the Sermon on the Mount is God's kingship, God's rule among his people. Now, last week, we looked at the relationship between, the, between Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven and the teaching of the Old Testament. We looked at the principle that Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it or to accomplish it. After that principle is stated by Jesus, Jesus then presents a few scenarios of how that principle is applied. And in the rest of chapter 5, uh, as we saw last week, Uh, we see these scenarios. And today we will look at the first three scenarios, the first three examples in, in which Jesus clarifies what it means for us, citizens of God's kingdom, to live out the reign of God in our lives here on earth. That's why the theme of, of this, this morning's message is kingdom demands on hatred, adultery, and divorce. I encourage you to open scripture to Matthew chapter 5. We'll read from verse 21 all the way to verse 32. And if you're here this morning and are using a pew Bible, which you will find in your pews, you may find this passage on page 838. I encourage you to open scriptures, the pew Bibles, 838, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 32. Here's the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Amen. Let's pray for this word and for our hearts this morning. Father, we ask that your Son would speak once again to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would be reminded of how your reign is to be displayed in our midst. And we pray that your presence with us would always be kingly and will continue to call us into conformity to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, all three scenarios that we will look at today have one thing in common. They all have to do with relationships, and specifically with breaking relationships, not just by murder, which is a clear way of breaking a relationship, but by hatred, not just by adultery, but by lust. And finally, the break of the marriage relationship by divorce. Now, in all three scenarios, a, a break takes place, and Jesus would address the inclinations of our hearts to constantly break relationships. Notice how throughout this section that we read from God's Word, there's a phrase that is repeated, and it marks the beginning of a new scenario. The phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, Jesus here is not going against the Old Testament. Instead, he knows that what people heard concerning the Old Testament 
was not really what God intended. Through the centuries, the teachers of the law added certain human interpretations which became authoritative in the eyes of the people, and rightly so, because they seemed to be a little looser. And Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament, but he's contradicting what they have heard and what they have understood from the Old Testament. Friends, this danger is always close to us as well. The danger of misunderstanding God's intentions and misinterpreting His Word in order to make it easier for us. We're always inclined to grant more authority to human tradition than to God's Word. And Jesus is now peeling off some of those inclinations. So what are the demands of the kingdom? If you're here and this sermon is specifically for anyone who first and foremost is a proclaimed Christ follower, someone who proclaims to live under the lordship of Christ, to be a part of the kingship of Christ. What are the demands of the kingdom? Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a self-professed Christian, there's going to be some application for you as well. But, but this sermon is specifically addressed to those who proclaim to be followers of Christ. What are the demands of the kingdom which Jesus proclaimed? Three examples. On murder and hatred, on adultery and lust, and finally on divorce. Let's look at the first example. And folks, I realize that there's something for every one of us in the sermon. There's something for me that I took away, that God has confronted me as I prepare for this sermon as well. So I hope that as we're listening to what Jesus is peeling off, that we listen with hearts that are open to hear him. Jesus begins a first example of correcting people's impressions of the Old Testament by addressing the case of committing murder. Now, the command not to murder was part of, of the initial Ten Commandments. It was actually the, the Sixth Commandment. How, however, God was not simply interested to forbid the act of murder, but in cautioning against the character of a murderer. Namely, the views, the, the, the sinful views on other people, his attitudes of angriness towards others, because the, behind the act of committing murder stands a sinful attitude towards other people and a, a sinful view of other people. And Jesus insists that not only murderers are subject to judgment, but anyone who has such a sinful view of other people. Now let's look at verse 22 in the text we read. Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Jesus addresses here three attitudes, three sinful attitudes that we can have towards other people. Being angry, now, this is not simply the reaction of being frustrated or disappointed when somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do. You may be angry with your employees. Uh, you may be angry with other family members because, you know, they haven't picked up the trash. You know, we're not talking about that kind of angriness and, and disappointment and frustration. We're talking about an angriness that really has to do with, with hatred. The next, ver the next attitude is the attitude of, of calling your brother Raka. Now, none of you do this. 
I don't. I don't call my brother Raka. But the meaning of this word is, 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 it's a word from Aramaic that means empty. And when you apply that as an adjective to somebody else, it means you have no value in my eyes. You're empty. It is that attitude of you're good for nothing. It's the attitude which considers another person as dead in our eyes. That hard attitude is, is no different than the attitude of someone who does commit adultery. Yes, you may not commit adultery, but in your heart, in your mind, so-and-so is a dead person to you. You want to have nothing to do with them. When you have that attitude, whether or not you use the word raka, you have the attitude. And thirdly, a third attitude, a third sinful attitude that Jesus calls out or identifies is, is calling others fools. Now, the phenomenon Jesus addresses is when we call out such names out of anger, out of discontent, and out of a low view of the other person. The Bible oftentimes will call some people fools. Jesus will say that the person who, does not, who, who hears his words and does not do them is like a foolish man. But they were not talking simply about saying, uttering the word out, fool. We're talking about the attitude of Jesus. is referring to the attitude of, of angriness and contentment and, and hatred that we have towards other people. As a matter of fact, these three attitudes, they're not, they're not degrees of hate. As if you start here and then you end here. They're all... They're the same thing. They're, it's like talking about the same truth from a different angle. It looks differently, but it's the same sinful attitude. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. In the kingdom of heaven, it's not just about the act of murder that will be judged, but any sinful attitude that we might have towards other people. You may take pride in yourself this morning that you have never murdered anyone. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people who think they're good Christians and they're fine with God because they haven't murdered anyone. But have you ever wished someone was dead? Have you ever considered someone without any value in your eyes? According to Jesus, the king of the kingdom, such attitudes prove that our hearts are not very far removed from the hearts of those who do commit murder because we share the same attitude towards other people. And this should lead us to see the poverty of our spirits. Broken relationships always begin with sinful attitudes of our hearts towards other people before that sinful attitude gets to be displayed. And Jesus says, it's not just about the act, it's about the attitude of viewing others sinfully. In the second half of this, of this first scenario, Jesus gives two images. And both of these images make the same point. There are two different scenarios, but they make the same point. And it's the following. Take the initiative to restore broken relationships. Take the initiative to restore broken relationships. 
Now, the first imagery happens in church. Look at verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, this is, in other words, Jesus is saying, it is more important for you to be reconciled with your brothers than to show up for Sunday morning worship services. Now, don't take that as a reason not to come to church on Sunday mornings. That is not the point. What Jesus is saying is that why do you come to worship pretending that everything is fine, seeking to worship a God who restored you back to himself and to others, but you continue to live with broken relationships with your other brothers and sisters? Why do you come worshiping a God who restored you to himself and to other Christ followers, and yet you don't seek out that restoration in your own relationships with other Christians? Now, the second imagery Jesus gives is, is from a court setting, verses 25 and 26. Now, we should never be in a position to be the guilty party in a court, but Jesus, the point Jesus makes is he's stressing out this, the point that Personal reconciliation is an urgent matter. Do it quickly. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't put off the act and the responsibility of reconciling with your brothers and sisters. Do it urgently. Now, there's some of us here today who live with broken relationships. It could be actual family members who are Christians. It could be other other friends, other people that are Christ followers. When Christ restored us, dear friends, dear, dear brothers and sisters, he restored us also to other Christian brothers and sisters. And any attitude that stands in the way of our restoration with others needs to be confronted. For some of us this morning, the first thing we need to do when we get out of this service might be to start restoring our relationship with other brothers and sisters. For those of you who are asking, well, what about those who, who are not believers? Well, we still need to seek out to live in peace with them as much as we can. But we have a specific premise in importance to live out at peace with those who call themselves Christians because the basis and the reason why we're commanded to seek that re reconciliation is because God had reconciled us to himself and to other Christians. So coming to worship here on Sunday morning, knowing that you are continuing to live in an unreconciled relationship with another Christian brother or sister, and you not doing anything about it is an act of hypocrisy, according to Jesus. Friends, to live out the reign of God in our lives on earth means that we are people who do not engage in sinful attitudes towards other people, attitudes which foster broken relationships. And if we do have broken relationships, we will display the reign of God in our lives by seeking to restore those relationships urgently, just as God restored our relationship to us through Christ Jesus. That's Jesus' first example on murder and hate, hatred. Now we move on to the second example on adultery and lust. 
The second scenario Jesus addresses is the command which prohibits adultery. This command also comes from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. It was actually the Seventh Commandment. I, I have actually wondered if Jesus just started with the Sixth Commandment, then moved to the Second Commandment, or the Seventh Commandment. But this, is, this command came from this Old Testament. Now, in the day and age we live, if we were to preach just on this command alone, it'd still be difficult to preach on it. Even to Christians. Because we live times in times when Christians are experiencing God's gift of sexual pleasure outside the boundaries of marriage, and they don't seem to have a problem with it and are not repentful of it. So this command alone would be hard enough to hear. But Jesus goes a step further. The real problem is not just the act of adultery, but the problem of lust. Look at Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Have you, you have heard that it was said, do not commit, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading a wrong verse here. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now by doing Jesus, this correction, Jesus is not adding something new to the Old Testament and to the Seventh Commandment. But he's coupling, he's connecting the Seventh Commandment with the Tenth Commandment, which was about coveting your neighbor's wife. In other words, Jesus reminds the Jews that God's prohibition in the Old Testament was not simply against the act of adultery, but also the desire that led to adultery in the first place. The word Jesus uses for lust here is, is a Greek word, epithumia, which indicates a strong desire for someone or to have a sexual interest in someone. And this is considered, this desire is considered sinful when such desires are directed to anyone outside of marriage. Now, some of us may feel good about ourselves because we have not committed adultery. But which of us can say that we have never looked lustfully at another person. This should lead us to see the poverty of our spirit, to see the brokenness of the nature we inherited, and to drive us to seek constantly after God. Notice Jesus' teaching on how we should respond to sin in our lives, whether it's lust or any other kind of sin. Jesus gives two images, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I like what D.A. Carson, one of the New Testament professors, commented on these verses, he said, the eye is chosen because it has looked and lusted. The hand is chosen probably because adultery, even mental adultery, is a kind of theft. Now, Jesus is not saying here that physically we have to cut our hand or take out our eyes. 
there were some people in the history of the church that have taken these verses with that kind of literal meaning. But it cannot refer simply to this cutting out of the eye physically or, or cutting off of the hand physically because, after all, lust is a problem of the heart. Did you know that those who are promoting pornographic materials have found a way to come up with pornographic materials for blind people? That is to show that lust is not just a matter of our physical eyes. Lust is a matter of the heart. The point Jesus makes with these two images is that we are to deal drastically with sin, even with a sin that no one sees. We must not belittle it. We must not think that just because somebody doesn't see it, it is okay. I'll work through it. I'll, I'll keep it around. I can control it. I'll indulge in it once in a while. Nobody knows. We must not think that we can control sin while allowing ourselves a little bit of indulgence in it. Instead, Jesus is saying, crush it. Hate it. Cut it out. Now, Paul has this same kind of, of, of teaching in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice what he says, put to death. Don't just sugarcoat it. Don't just try to keep it there. Try to keep it hidden so nobody would see it. Put it out. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Which Paul says is idolatry. Why should we do this? Why should we take this kind of hard action against the sin in our lives, especially the sin that we don't see? Because Paul says, because the wrath of God is coming. Friends, with great burden of heart, I observe that our society takes sin lightly. But that's not what burdens me. I'm not surprised at all that society takes sin lightly. What I am surprised, however, is that those who call themselves Christians take sin less and less seriously. We no longer ask Christians who fall into public sins to repent. We no longer condemn sin in the lives of self-professed Christians. Why? Because we say that if if we do, we appear as if we're judgmental. Friends, I wonder if we have lost our sensitivity to the great dangers of sin. And therefore, we no longer have the desire to fight against it. And we actually excuse that lack of desire by saying we don't want to be judgmental. I wonder if we have lost the sense that it is important to declare war against sin, against the sin in our lives. I wonder if we understand what Jesus' imagery means when he says to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands. Not physically, metaphorically, but it is a hard, clear-cut message. Again, I want to remind all of us today 
that Jesus is speaking these things to his disciples. Jesus never sent away sinners who came to him. He never, came, he never sent away sinners who came to him. As a matter of fact, one day, Jewish leaders brought to Jesus a woman who was caught in adultery, in the act of adultery. And the Old Testament command for anyone who was caught in doing adultery was, you got to be stoned to death. Quite a clear way to cut, cut off a relationship. And this woman is caught in the act of adultery, and the Jewish leaders are bringing this woman to Jesus and say, let's see what Jesus will do to this sinful woman. And what does Jesus do? He shows her his grace, his forgiveness. Not only does Jesus show her, her his grace and forgiveness, but literally Jesus is saving this woman from death, from being stoned. But remember, this woman was not part of, of those who were following Christ. She was one of the lost sheep of Israel. And when, when, when the lost people come to Jesus, they will find acceptance no matter what sins they have done. There's no sin great enough that you can commit before God, dear friend, if you're lost today, that, that God cannot forgive you of. So Jesus forgave this woman. She, he, he, he saved her literally from death. But after this woman encountered Jesus, after she had found Jesus, the words he gave to her were, Go and sin no more. Because those who, who claim, who have met with Christ, those who are now part of the kingdom of God, have now declared war against sin. They're now taking God's side against their sin and not taking the side of their sin against God. Dear friends, Christ is calling His followers to fight sin off their lives and take a drastic attitude against it. This means that if we find ourselves in an ongoing sin... We need to repent of it. If you observe that certain situations or habits lead you to fall into sin, avoid those situations. Avoid those habits. And even if they are not inherently wrong in and of themselves, whatever leads you to sin becomes sin for you. Take it out. Pluck it out. Now, how can we continue Dear friends, how can we continue to love that which Christ came to destroy? How can we continue to cherish in our hearts and hide in our hearts and explain away in our hearts or treat lightly the sin for which Christ was crucified? Do, do, do you realize the, the kind of break that needs to take place between us and our sin when we begin to follow Christ, when we trust ourselves in the sacrifice of Christ. Oh yes, all of us will continue to live with a human nature. I'm not talking about the fact that we continue to, to fall into sin. I'm talking about that clear attitude of, of trying to fight against sin in our personal lives. So far, we looked at the first two scenarios Jesus sought to correct before his disciples. What both of these have in common is that God stretches the scepter of his reign not only over our external behavior of murder or adultery, 
but over the realm of our inward anger and our inward lusts, which others may not see, but God does, and He wants none of it. This is the way God's kingdom operates. It's a reign that has the power to judge our thoughts and our desires. It's a kingdom that extends into our hearts. And that's why one of the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount was, Blessed are the pure in hearts. We have looked on murder and hatred. We have looked at adultery and lust. And finally, Jesus addresses a third scenario. The scenario of divorce. Now, this third scenario is, is addressing another misinterpretation the Israelites had. In this case, it was on the permission to divorce. Look at verse 31 and 32 in the passage we've read. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now these verses in the Sermon on the Mount are further expanded by Jesus in Matthew 19, verses, verses 3 to 9, where in that passage, Jesus was specifically approached by the Pharisees who asked very pointedly, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' correction on the divorce is very short and to the point. However, if we want to understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, we must understand what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19 as well. Because the radical teachings Jesus gives even on divorce is based on the assumptions Jesus has. In, in, in Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus' teaching on divorce is given on the backdrop of his high view of marriage. Look at Matthew 19, 6. Whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, marriage is not just the decision of two individuals who decide to unite their lives. Marriage is God's act of joining two lives. God is involved in forging that union, and He decrees that no man should separate what God unites. That's why in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, we are told that God hates divorce. And what God hates, we should not desire. Yet, in the Old Testament, Moses seems to have allowed for the practice of divorce and has allowed for certain situations when someone could divorce his wife and how to go about it when, when that happened. However, Jesus clarifies that Moses made that allowance because of the hardness of people's hearts. It was because of their sinfulness. This was not God's initial design. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. That means, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, that as citizens of God's kingdom, we should never encourage other Christians to divorce, even when they're permitted by Scripture. Our constant attitude when we encounter someone who is on the brink of divorce is always to, to, to point him to the, to the repentance and the reconciliation and the restoration of relationships that can happen only because of Christ. We should pray that they would be reconciled because that was God's initial design for every marriage. 
Now, if, if those who are within the biblical grounds or limitations or exceptions of divorce, they may do so, but that doesn't mean we, we can encourage them to do so. There's a big difference. By the time of Jesus, you can imagine what the Old Testament folks have done. They took that exception clause and they started finding other excuses and reasons and redefining of terms. So that by the time of Jesus, people were divorcing one another for almost no reason at all and as long as they gave the certificate of divorce. That's why in Matthew 19, one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any reason at all? By the time of Jesus, people reinterpreted the Old Testament in a way that suited their needs and their desires. And Jesus seeks to correct this practice. And the only biblical reason that Jesus allows for divorce is sexual immorality. Now, if we look in the rest of the New Testament on this reason, on this subject, there's only one other reason that seems to be allowed for divorce by Scripture. And that is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse. To, to divorce someone for any other reason, according to Scripture, other than these two, is to make the other partner susceptible to commit adultery. That's what Jesus says. And why? Because the relationship between a husband and a wife has not really been broken. In other words, a divorce that takes place on grounds other than sexual immorality or the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse is not really divorce in God's eyes. And therefore, remarrying somebody else is considered by God as an adultery. Friends, divorce on non-biblical grounds is open rebellion against God's design for marriage. And it is incompatible with claiming that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. To say that God is king of our lives, but yet we willingly go against his reign and pursue divorce outside the two biblical uh, exceptions and hope that God will still forgive us afterwards is a clear sign of an unrepentant heart who pretends to be submissive to God, but in reality we are not. Now, for those of you who have experienced great, the great pains of divorce because, some, because, because you have been cheated on or abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, we pray. We pray that God would comfort you or, or any of others who you may know. And we pray that God would heal the wounds of their hearts. But for anyone who, who has experienced the, the great pains of divorce, but it was not for, for the two reasons permitted by Scripture, we pray that God would bring them to repentance. Now, God's comfort and healing can reach them as well, but only if they realize the great depths of their rebellion against God and if they repent. And to such people, we cannot give any encouragement to remarry. Now, if they have remarried already and it's too late to do anything about it, they're not supposed to divorce, to do another divorce. Let them stay where they are. But the only hope for them in this case, is repentance. Recognize that what has happened was wrong. Now, there's some here this morning, you know someone in, in your life who has gone through, the, through divorce on unbiblical grounds and then remarried. I want to remind you that divorce or the adultery 
that is caused by remarrying after an unbiblical grounds for divorce. These two are not unforgivable sins if, if there is to repentance. The person in this situation should confess their sin. And if they, if they have not done it so already, and should embrace the forgiveness that comes from Christ. There are people, folks, there are people who are contemplating divorce even if they have no biblical grounds for it and they plan to ask God for forgiveness afterwards. Friends, to such, such cases, to such situations, that's a proof that these folks have not understood God's repentance. They have not understood that God is indeed merciful and, and will forgive them, but only if there's true repentance. And premeditated divorce, when you know, when you've been warned and you still go through it and there's no biblical grounds for it, there is no forgiveness for it. Can they be searched by the Spirit of God truly to repent? Possibly, yes. But so many times people think ahead of time about it and are not given the big caution that this is serious business. To continue to live in that kind of open rebellion against God really puts a major question mark of whether or not that person is really living out the kingship, the reign of God in their lives, or they're just pretending like so many Pharisees and teachers of the law did. How can we, citizens of God's kingdom, desire what the king hates and still claim that we're close to the king? How can we do that? It's incompatible. In all three scenarios, and there's so much more we could talk about divorce, but in all three scenarios that Jesus is correcting in, in this passage, he's seeking to bring people back to God's initial desire, to the Old Testament as God initially intended. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of heaven and telling us how that reign of God is to live out, to be lived out, only in, not only in our relationship to God, but also in our relationship to other citizens of the kingdom, and especially within our family relations. And today we saw three applications on hatred and lust and divorce. In all three scenarios, Jesus spoke with authority. Did you notice how in each of the situations, how Jesus began? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Three times Jesus uses this phrase, but I say to you. Now, can I be honest with you? And I'm, I am trying to be honest every time. It is just a phrase. It's a colloquial. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a Texan, I think. If you're going to a church and you hear the preacher say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you need to leave that church. And that church needs to fire that pastor. Because to try to speak on the authority of ourselves as preachers is one of the greatest follies we can do. And to teach people things that are not scriptural is a great folly, is great danger. We human beings do not have that authority to say, this is what God's word says, but I say to you. Yet Jesus spoke in that way. You know why he spoke in that way? Because he was not just a servant of the kingdom like preachers are. He was the king of the kingdom. A 
And because of that, whenever you hear this phrase, and I say to you, this is a king speaking. And that's why he has the authority to make these claims. That's why he has the authority to make these corrections. Dear friends, the king speaks to us because he wants us to reflect the values of the kingdom better than the way the people in Jesus' day have understood it because it was so misinterpreted. And for some, of, for some of us this morning, for some of you this morning who may have listened to this message, but you, you're not a self-professed Christian, you have not understood why we talk so much about these issues that seem on the surface to be so moralistic might give you the impression that in order to be a Christian, you need to be ready to do all these things. And frankly, from, where, from the position where you are right now, these demands of the kingdom are just a little too much. And you don't think you'll ever be able to put up with them. And you're thinking, why would I even want to be a Christian if this is how it's required to live like a Christian? I understand. From the position you're at, it makes so much sense to see it this way. But let me show you why the logic that just governs your thinking in this situation is, is faulty. Because none of us this morning, none of us who claim to be citizens of God's kingdom, could ever live these demands on our own. From a human point of view, these demands are impossible and undesirable. And sometimes even we, citizens of the kingdom, may wonder, why did we choose this path? But the difference is that when we do become citizens of God's kingdom, God gives us His Holy Spirit and He empowers us to do these things and He changes our hearts so that we would desire these things from the bottom of our hearts. It's because we have declared our allegiance to the King of Heaven that we are willingly and joyfully submitting to His Lordship and because He redeemed us from the wrath of God that He gave us a new life. That's why we can talk about these things. And yes, they may seem moralistic, but it's only because God has given us a new standard, a new life that actually desires for these things. So my dear friend, if you're not a self-perfect Christian, if you have been an outsider of the kingdom, I want to make sure you hear the call of the king for your life this morning. God, the almighty king, is our creator, and he is holy. He created us perfect in His image to reflect His nature and His character. And He called us to live in perfect obedience to Him. But we, we rejected His rule over our lives. And therefore, we became His enemies, deserving His wrath. But He still loved us. And He loved us so much that even as His enemies, He sent His only begotten Son to die for His enemies, for God's enemies. And His only begotten Son died on the cross. He took upon Himself the wrath that we deserved. He was crucified, and three days later, He rose again. And then He ascended to the heaven, and now He rules at the right hand of the Father. And He is calling men and women to become citizens of this kingdom. And He's calling you this morning to join the kingdom. If you hear His call this morning, I pray that you would accept it. We can become citizens of God's kingdom by acknowledging our rebellion against the king, by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ's sacrifice for our salvation. And King Jesus will come again to earth to take to himself all those who responded to his call 
and who believe out his reign and who live out his reign on earth. And I pray, I pray that you too will be part of his kingdom. And if you'd like to know more about what it means and how you could become a part of God's kingdom, I would love to talk to you at the end. But for all of us, for all of us who already responded to the call of the king, remember what the king has called us to do. Let me remind you, what he called us to do, he already provided for us the resources so we could live those out. He provided for us the Holy Spirit. He provided for us the sacrifice of Christ, the gospel who continues to bring us to God. It is only as we maintain an attitude of poverty of spirit and dependent upon the Lord as our King that we can live out on earth the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer before the Lord. Father, through your word today, you reminded us of, of the standards of the kingdom, of the demands of the kingdom, and for all of us, in some way or shape or form, these demands seem hard. And for many of us, we, we find ourselves unable to live up to these demands. Lord, we recognize that, humanly speaking, we cannot. But, Lord, we, we recognize that we're bankrupt. We recognize that we're poor. We do not have the resources to live out the values of your kingdom on our own. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to really live in our lives, your presence in our lives, to be a kingly presence. We pray that you transform us, transform our hearts, transform our minds, so that we may see the beauty of the way you have designed your kingdom to be. Lord, we pray that we would live on earth the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us with, with your power that is coming to us through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may richly dwell in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, I pray for his glory and honor.